Good morning, Brookside. I love that video because it takes something that, that seems so ordinary, right? When you just see the little girl riding her bike out in her driveway in front of her house with her parents watching, it takes something that seems so ordinary, but, but then it takes that thing and it shows you some of the things that led up to that seemingly ordinary event, right? I mean, the, the care that her dad took in picking out her bike, the, the, the desire that she had for it, kind of multiple Christmas lists with that at the top of the list, her mom and her dad staying up late into the night to put the bike together. The, the more you see behind the scenes of that event, of her riding the bike in her driveway, the more you see the backstory of that, the more it helps you see how meaningful and important a little girl riding her bike in her driveway is. And that's our desire with a series. We're, we're in this behind-the-scenes series where we're looking at something that, that maybe for a lot of us is familiar or, or, or can seem ordinary, right? We're looking at the birth of a baby in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. But, but we think that the more we, the more we look behind the scenes of this, of this event that seems ordinary, that maybe is familiar, the more we look behind the scenes of it, the more it takes on big significance and big meaning. And so last week, Jeff got us started with this series, and he, he kind of brought us through some Old Testament promises, looking forward to the coming of Jesus being born to us. And then this morning, I'm excited to keep us going with that series. In just a minute, we're going to get into Matthew 1. In January 2007, the Washington Post put together a sort of experiment where they asked the world-renowned violinist, a guy by the name of Joshua Bell, to, to go into this very public plaza in the center of Washington, D.C. during rush hour, right? So lots of foot traffic going on, and they asked him to play. And, and they asked him to play his best, right? So, so, so play like, like you're in a top-notch venue, only you're in the middle of a plaza in Washington, D.C. And the catch was he wouldn't be dressed in, in a tuxedo or, or anything like that. He would be dressed like this in a T-shirt and jeans and a baseball cap. He was going undercover because the experiment was to see how people rushing by would respond to greatness that was in their midst, to see if a crowd would gather and how much money would be tossed into this violin case that was open at his feet. One musical expert who kind of knew what was going on with, ex with this experiment, he guessed that a crowd of, of probably 75 to 100 people would, would stop and would gather to hear Joshua Bell play. And, and they asked him, how much money do you think would be given into this violin case? He said probably 150 bucks was his guess. So, so here's what happened in reality. Joshua Bell played on the violin for 45 minutes. Almost 1,100 people walked by and less than 30 stopped at all. A crowd never gathered, and only $32 and change was tossed into the violin case. Over a 1,000 people walked by a world-renowned musician playing great classical music and missed it. And so, so the lesson here for us, the, the scary lesson for us, is that it is possible to be in the midst of greatness and miss it. Now imagine that same Joshua Bell story. Imagine if things had happened a little bit differently with it. Imagine if somehow news had leaked and people knew what was going on behind the scenes. Imagine if they knew the identity of the one who was playing. This is a guy that if you saw him anywhere else, you'd be shelling out hundreds of dollars to go get this sort of performance. I bet if people had a glimpse of what was going on behind the scenes 
of this seemingly ordinary event, the response would have been completely different. I bet a crowd would have been gathered, right? People would have had their phones out, taking pictures, taking recordings, kind of selfies with Joshua Bell in the background, them in the foreground. More money than $32 in change probably would have been tossed into the violin case. Knowing the story behind the scenes would have changed everything. Well, here's where I'm going with all this. So, so here we are today in this season called Advent when we're looking forward to celebrating God sending Jesus to earth as a baby, one of the biggest events in history. And I don't want you to miss the greatness that's in our midst as we look forward to Advent. And the thing is, I think it can be too easy to miss this. I I know it can for me. I mean, during this time of year, it seems like my schedule just keeps getting busier and busier and busier. Evenings get filled up so quickly. And I talk with people all the time who can relate to this. Schedules are packed during this time of year. Or maybe something happened in your life this year that has changed everything. A relationship is gone or a job has changed. Something else that very understandably is getting some of your best attention right now. Or maybe everything is going great. You'd say everything is fine and normal. And it is fine and normal. But sometimes it's when we press coast and take our eyes off the road, when we think everything is fine, that we miss what's most important. And so for all of us, let's not miss what's most important as we look ahead to Jesus coming. Let's not miss the greatness that's in our midst as we approach Advent. And so here's our goal for for this series, this behind-the-scenes series, but here's my goal for this morning. We just want to help you see Jesus more clearly. We, We want to see We want to see who he is. We want to see what he offers and why that makes a difference in our lives. And I don't know, maybe this won't change anything about your immediate circumstances. Maybe tomorrow won't look that much different than today. I mean, maybe it will, maybe it won't. But but whatever the case, I want us to see that knowing Jesus and following Jesus, having a clear picture of Jesus in mind, it changes everything about how we handle those circumstances we find ourselves in. So, so some of you are coming off of a season of just excitement and success. Jesus makes a difference in that. Others of you are coming off a series, a, a, a season of just despair, of discouragement, of trial and testing, you feel like. Jesus makes a difference in those circumstances. I want you to see that, that Jesus offers direction. I want you to see that Jesus offers hope. So that way, by the time you leave here this morning, I want you to leave saying, yes, I'm going to cling to Jesus. I want you to say, yes, Jesus is worth following. And so the place we're going today is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. It's Jesus' family tree recorded in Matthew. And tucked into this list of names, because that's what it is. It's just a list of names tucked into this list of names that a lot of people skip, or at least they skim, we're going to find two big takeaways that help us see how good and how great Jesus is. Just to let you know where we're going, this is what I always do, right? Jesus is the promised king. We're going to see that in this list of names, and we're going to see that God can take what is messy and make it a masterpiece. So we'll kind of come back to those in just a second. But let me read a list of names for us. Let me read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. So buckle up. Hang on for the ride. We're going to sprint through this. 
This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nachshon, Nachshon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon's wife, of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Everybody got some good baby names for your next child, grandchild, right? Okay, we're almost there. We've got one more section to go. So after the exile to Babylon, verse 12, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband to Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Well, don't clap. Your, your threshold for clapping is getting way too low if you clap for something like that. So, so, so this is one of those passages that, that a lot of people skim, right? I mean, it's one of those passages that if you're listening to the Bible on audio, you, you kind of bump up the speed to times two speed. Because we want to get to the action, don't we? I mean, this is just a list. Who cares about lists? You do. I, I think if, if you stopped to think about it, any one of us cares a whole lot more about lists than we sometimes care to admit, or, or at least than sometimes we're aware of. If you're a student, either in high school or college, you care a whole lot more about lists like this dean's list or this honor roll list, or at least your parents hope you care about that list. I know the first time I watched a movie where I knew somebody who was involved in the production of that movie. That, that list of names that's scrolling at the end of the movie, that everybody kind of gets up and walks out there, I stuck through that list of names because I was looking for the guy that I knew. I wanted to see the role that he played. I cared a lot about the list in that movie because I knew somebody who was involved in it. Ancestry.com is a website that's designed to help you build a list to help you discover your family tree. I talk to people all the time who are kind of doing, and doing that sort of thing and digging into their family tree. Or, or there's one more list that I've got to mention. Here's where we're going to do some interaction, so make sure you're dialed in. I, I'm going to start to list some names here on the screen behind me, just kind of one by one. And I want you to kind of shout out to me. Here's where I need you to participate, right? I want you to shout out to me what these names have in common. So first person to get it, shout it out. We'll see where it's going. So first name, let's see, George Clark, right? Lots of people named George Clark. Could be anybody. Let's go to the next name, Bernard Masterson. 
Anybody? All right, let's go to the third name. Bill Glassford. Coach, yes. Boom, you're my hero, right? So, so these aren't just coaches. What are these coaches of? These are Nebraska football coaches, right, going back way back. So if you've not heard, Nebraska just hired this guy by the name of Scott Frost. It's been kind of obscure, under the radar screen. So in case you didn't know that, that's been going on. But uh, all these groans are like, okay, Tim, get on with it. The, the, the point I'm making is, is that we all care about lists, right? As long as that list represents something that's important to you, as long as that list represents something that's important to us. And so as we think about this list that I just read in Matthew 1, I want to show you why this list is something you should care more about because of how it shows us Jesus so crisply and clearly. So, so this list in Matthew 1, it shows us that Jesus is the promised king. God's people have been waiting for a king for a long time, thousands of years. Way back in the beginning of our Bibles, God makes a big promise to one of the key figures in our Bibles, this guy by the name of Abraham. And listen to what he says in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. It says, the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, this guy that will be known as Abraham not too long from now in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So, so from the very earliest pages of our Bible, the, the, there's this idea that God has promised a king to his people. Because in that passage I just read, it says, I'll make you into a great nation. If there's a nation, that nation has to have a ruler. That nation will have a king. Right? And then that, that king, next slide, is kind of shown hand-to-hand with blessing. So from the earliest pages of the Bible, God's people are looking forward to a king that goes hand-in-hand with blessing, blessing to the whole world. And then as we keep reading in the Bible, this anticipation of a king gets, gets clearer. Probably the hallmark promise comes in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. Where, where God is talking to David, one of the greatest kings, probably the greatest king in the Old Testament. And he says, your house and your kingdom, David, will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And so that last phrase is big. David has promised a dynasty that would last forever, that would have no end. This dynasty is established by a king whose reign goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. And so with all that in mind, let's go back and read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 again. So, so this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, right? One of the big names. This is the line in whose, in whose line that the, the king would come, the son of Abraham, right? He was going to be the one through, through, through whom this nation, this king would come that would bless all the nations. So you bet as people read through this list of names in Matthew 1.1, they are clued in from the very first name that this Jesus, this Jesus Christ who's called the Messiah, he is the fulfillment of everything God has been promising to his people for thousands and thousands of years. So Jesus is the promised king. But what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you, that Jesus is the promised king? 
Well, it means a lot of things, um, but let me share one. Um, it means Jesus is the center of history. Jesus is, is, the, is the king who had been promised he now has come. The promise that had been anticipated is now the promise that has been fulfilled. And, and so, so all these questions that people have, did, does evil win? Can I change? Does following God actually do anything? The coming of Jesus decisively answers those questions. No, evil doesn't win. Yes, you can change. Yes, following God does tremendous things, opening up direct access to the Father through Jesus Christ. We get the Holy Spirit, all these things that you learn about. Jesus is the pivot point for all of these things. He's the center of history. And if Jesus is the center of history, if Jesus is the promised king who is to come, who now has come, doesn't it just make sense that Jesus should be the center of your life? That Jesus should be the king of your life. Earlier this week, I saw a tweet quoting Dallas Willard. He's a philosophy professor at USC. Just recently passed away, but he was there for years and years and years. Wrote a ton of books on, on what it means to follow God. He's the name we've kind of used a lot here at Brookside. He's a good guy to get to know if you've never been introduced to him. But, but look at this, this guy, Matt Smethers, quoting Dallas Willard. So Dallas Willard says, because I make my living as a university professor and a philosopher, I'm frequently asked in so many words, why do you follow Jesus Christ? Because for a lot of people, those things don't compute, right? Philosophy and university professor, that doesn't seem to lead to following Jesus Christ in a lot of people's minds. But look at what Dallas Willard, super brilliant guy, look at what he says. Why do you follow Jesus? My answer is always the same. Who else do you have in mind? You see, you see, Willard knows that we all follow something or someone. All of us do. And Willard knows that there is nothing else. Among everything else that competes for our attention and our allegiance, there is nothing else that compares with the surpassing worth of following Jesus. And so as Matthew so clearly presents Jesus, the way we saw him presented, right? As Matthew so clearly presents Jesus as the promised king, it's like he's answering that same question that Dallas Willard has asked, right? So, so if somebody was going to ask Matthew, Matthew, the gospel writer, why do you follow Jesus? I bet Matthew would think through everything that he wrote in Matthew 1 about how he's the promised Messiah, the promised king. And I bet Matthew would say the same thing. Who else did you have in mind? He's the promised king. Nobody else even comes close in terms, of, in terms of who should receive my allegiance, my following that way. So should you care about the names listed in Matthew 1? Yes. They show us that Jesus is the promised king. But, but there's more, because this list of names also shows us that God can take what is messy and weave it into a masterpiece. Back in the day, genealogies were basically like resumes are today. That they were your chance... <clears throat> to put your best foot forward, right? I mean, genealogies establish credibility and legitimacy. Your genealogy would either open up doors for you or your genealogy would shut those same doors. And so, so knowing that, 
I think it's especially interesting to see the names that Matthew chose to highlight in this genealogy that he tracks down to Jesus Christ. You see, rather than only highlighting the most neat names on the list, kind of the people that, yeah, I want to be like him or I want to be like her or anything like that, Matthew highlights some people that are very intentionally associated with mess as you read through the Old Testament. It's almost almost like Matthew is going out of his way to highlight that, that the Messiah came from this mess of people. People that if you were at Thanksgiving dinner, that would be the side of the family tree. You're like, you're, you don't want to sit across from them at the table, right? But, but Matthew takes this list and he says, no, this isn't a downer. This is encouraging. Let, let's look at how God takes this mess and turns it into a masterpiece. So let's just do a flyby of some of these names. So Abraham, as important as he was, he was by no means perfect. Because if you read through his story in Genesis, you, you, you see multiple times that Abraham, in this desire to protect himself, he lies and puts his wife in some very dangerous situations. And he does it twice, right? I mean, Jacob, another name down the list, is characterized by deception for much of his life. He, for much of his life. He's a jerk for a lot of his life. David, King David, right? Great King David is also an adulterer and a murderer. Solomon started out wise but ends up stupid. And then don't miss the women that are listed in Jesus' genealogy. That's a big deal that his genealogy lists women that wouldn't have been common back in his day at all. But but each of these women that Matthew mentions in Jesus' genealogy, they've got some, some shady stuff associated with them. Tamar, is a gal we read about in Genesis 38 in a story that's probably not in any of your kids' Bibles that you own, right? It's just a story of, of deception and manipulation and incest with her father-in-law Judah. Rahab, if you know your Bibles, Rahab is this awesome example of faith, right? We should be like Rahab in that way, but she is a citizen of, of this place called Canaan that is just known for its wickedness. And then Rahab is a prostitute, messy. Ruth isn't Jewish. She's from this place called Moab, a place that was characterized by sexual immorality. And then there's Bathsheba. That's the wife of Uriah. We see in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, Bathsheba committed adultery with David. And so the stories behind so many of these names, and the stories behind more of the names, if we would keep on going, the stories behind most of these names in Matthew 1, they're messy. And yet none of this mess stops the fulfillment of God's promises. None of this mess, none of this brokenness keeps God from turning turning that into beauty, culminating in Jesus Christ coming to earth to save us from our sins. And if God is able to take what's messy and turn it into a masterpiece across cultures, right? Because some of those cultures, Canaan, Moab, Israel, across thousands of years, if God is able to take this mess and turn it into a masterpiece across cultures and across thousands of years, that same God, he is good enough and he is powerful enough to take the mess that is in your life and to turn it into a masterpiece, Maybe there's something in your past that has you trapped by shame and discouragement, and and you were just paralyzed by that. Maybe maybe there's a tragedy 
that hit you this year and you're reeling from news you never thought you'd get. Maybe a relationship that you were banking on didn't pan out and this Christmas you were just overwhelmed by loneliness. At some level, we are all messy. And following Jesus, listen to me say this, following Jesus, it never means we bury our mess or pretend it doesn't exist. See, some people think that following Jesus is like the waiting room of a job interview, where, where you just, you're there to put your best foot forward, right? You're all polished up. You've got this plastic smile on your face. And then any stuff you've got, you put that aside because you don't want to bring any of that up in the interview. That is not what church is like, Brookside. That is not what we, what we want our church to be like, Brookside. Instead, church should be like the waiting room in an ER where everyone there knows they need help. Everyone there is there because they know they need to get treated. And so as we follow Jesus, God is able to take our mess and make it into a masterpiece. Well, when Joshua Bell was playing his violin in Washington, D.C., over 1,000 people walked by. They walked by a world-class musician playing world-class music, and they miss it. They're in the midst of greatness, and they don't even know about it. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, helps make sure we do not do that with Jesus this Christmas. Helps make sure that we don't walk by greatness that's in our midst and miss it. Instead, Matthew 1 helps us see the greatness of Jesus and that he is worth following. This list of names drives home the truth that Jesus is God's promised king. And as God's promised king, he deserves our allegiance. He provides direction and security. And so for those of us here following Jesus, this is a reminder to keep following Jesus. Don't let anything distract you from that. Don't let anything dilute that. Keep following Jesus as your promised king. And then for anyone here who, who hasn't chosen to follow Jesus, maybe today's the day where stuff finally makes sense and you see why following Jesus is such a big deal, that the difference that following Jesus can make in your life. If that's you, you, you can just say something with your eyes wide open, looking at me, something like this that communicates the posture of your heart, where you just communicate, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I need to be rescued. Jesus, I trust what you've done for me, dying for my sins on the cross. And then you can just wrap it up by saying something as simple as, Jesus, I will follow you as my Savior and my Lord. As God's promised King, Jesus deserves our allegiance. And then this list of names shows us that God can take what is messy and make it a masterpiece. And if that's the case, then Jesus is worth following. It shows us that, that however messy your life is right now, God isn't surprised. God still somehow, in some way, in his goodness and in his providence, he somehow knows what he's doing. So there's always hope that God can take your brokenness and weave it into beauty. You see, Jesus, this picture we get of Jesus shouldn't be one of, of perpetual disappointment. The, the picture we get of Jesus isn't one where he's like, Tim, Tim, I, I see your mess. You go clean it up, 
and then come back to me. That's not the picture we get of Jesus at all. The, the picture we get of Jesus shouldn't be this perpetual, constant frown on our face. Instead, the picture we get of Jesus is that he redeems what is broken. He restores what is messy. Last week, my family and I were at Costco after church to get some lunch. It was the cheapest place for a family of six to get lunch on kind of low prep. It was awesome. And so we're there doing our usual thing, um, getting like a whole lot of milk and some other stuff and getting lunch. And we run into another Brookside family that's there. Uh, and kind of uh, uh, while we're there, uh, one of their younger kids must have spilled their drink or something like that because we get there and they're just finishing up, cleaning up this mess that this, that this little kid had made, right? She's standing here in this puddle of soda or pop whatever you call it, right? I mean, she's standing in this puddle, this mess that she's made. And what, what I remember about that is, that is that her dad wasn't like, why did you do that? That there was no shame. There was no eruption. Here, while this little girl stood in this, in this puddle of soda and her mom cleaned it up, her dad just embraced her with a smile on his face. And so, so while this girl was standing in a puddle that, that, she, that she had created, right? This puddle of soda... Her dad is loving her. And so while we stand in our mess, God isn't there with his angry fist in the air. God is inviting you to follow him and to, to say, let me turn that mess into a masterpiece. Jesus is worth following. So today, we have the chance not only to reflect on Jesus in his birth, we also have a chance to reflect on Jesus in his crucifixion as we, as we remember and as we celebrate communion this morning. And so, so now at this point in our service, I'd, I'd like to call our hosts forward to begin passing the trays around in just a second after I pray. Uh, and then as those are going around, the two quick logistical notes that we always say, uh, make sure that you know that, that you want to reach deep and grab a stack of two cups as the trays go around. And then, and then we practice what we call an open communion. And the only thing we mean by that is that everyone here who's a follower of Jesus Christ is invited to participate in communion with us this morning. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to earth for us. Thank you for, for fulfilling your promises to send a king who would make everything right. A king, we certainly look forward to that someday, but we can taste that already in following Jesus ourselves. So God, thanks for the promise that he is our king and how, hey, how we can look back and know that he is that for us. And then Father, thank you also that you are so good and so powerful that you can take what is messy in our lives and turn it into a masterpiece. God, I pray even that that single truth would, would go deep into our hearts and give us hope this week and this Christmas, help us cling to you, Jesus, and see that whatever mess we find ourselves in, that you are worth following. So, Jesus, we say again, we follow you. Now, Jesus, we, as we celebrate communion, thank you for what this represents, you coming to die for us. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name.